And I'm an editor at Top Rank Magazine and a co-host of this podcast. And I'm Isabel, also a co-host of this podcast. This is actually our first episode, yay, of the Top Rank Magazine podcast. Um, and for those of you who don't know what Top Rank is, Top Rank is a biannual Brooklyn-based publication by, for, and about women of diverse backgrounds who are driving and shaping creative, activist, and intellectual fields. The core of Top Rank really is to celebrate women who are not only doing great things in their own lives, but are also helping other women do the same. So this collaborative and supportive ethos amongst women is really the driving spirit of Top Rank. So our first issue, which came out last April, features women such as activist Janet Mock, DJ and producer Kimann Foxman, documentary filmmaker Shala Lynch, and cultural anthropologist Deborah Thomas. We're currently working on issue two, but in the meantime, you can check out issue one at several locations across New York City, including opening ceremony in Soho and at the Ace Hotel, at the Schomburg Shop uh, up in Harlem, and at Mokata Museum in Fort Greene. You can also check us out online at toprankmagazine.com and on Instagram at toprankmagazine. And we're so pleased to be recording at Red Bull Studios, New York. Yes, thank you, Red Bull. So this podcast series will be sort of an offshoot of the print magazine in the form of a research-based platform, um, which is both process-oriented and kind of grounded in conversation. Less editorialized and written content, the idea is to create a, like a flexible outlet for whatever topic we and our readers and listeners might feel is interesting and topical. So the goal is to be exploratory rather than kind of prescriptive or conclusive. So Isabel and I are really intrigued by this like idea of a process-oriented research platform. We're friends, we're also huge nerds, and wanted to find an outlet to sort of ask, ask questions and like, do research projects about things that we're interested in, but you know didn't really have the time to do. So this podcast actually gives us um, an opportunity to also you know work with all of you who are listening to sort of ask interesting questions, talk to talk to women around the city who are doing really compelling things and sort of share those stories. So we're really looking forward to launching this research platform. So let's get into the first uh, episode topic. Um, And it's something that's really near and dear to both uh, my and Isabel's hearts, and it is nameplate jewelry. Nameplate jewelry has been something that I've at least been enamored with since I was a little girl growing up in Brooklyn. It's been something that's kind of been a part of my my water, my cultural atmosphere. Um, and it's also something that while I love it so much, I have a lot of questions about it. Um, and I know Isabel has similar like infatuation with this style. So uh, we kind of wanted to really delve into... Um, nameplate jewelry and explore it as uh, a piece of art, 
as something, as a thing that has formal qualities, that also has a, a social and a material history. Um, and it is also, you know, connected to um, so many people that have um, deep, you know, social histories and stories connected to these pieces of jewelry. So when talking about nameplates, we really wanted to frame this conversation within a few other concepts, namely talking about taste, the aesthetics of taste, cultural appropriation topics, and also, the, you know, the relationship between taste um, and aesthetics. So we really feel these, these issues around nameplate jewelry are, are current, they're fresh, they're compelling, but they're also fraught. And the nameplate itself is, you know, a subject and an object where conversations around identity and aesthetics really come together in, a, in an interesting way. So we'd like to point out again that we're not really looking for answers, um, nor do we expect to, to come across them, but we intend to kind of work through the topics um, that have caught and held our interest and in doing so to better understand why they're so consequential for us. Marcel and I actually bonded in our friendship over our love for nameplates and, the, and our love um, for the idea of customizing jewelry and finding words that describe us and define us. So this is a really special thing for us. Definitely. I'm super excited. So... To begin, we actually reached out to some women that we know um, and asked them to tell what we're calling their nameplate stories. And here's what they said. I have three pieces of name jewelry. I have a name ring, a name earring that sort of goes up the side of your ear, and a nameplate necklace, which is really the one worth speaking about. I got my nameplate as a gift from my parents around third or fourth grade, so maybe 2000, 2001. And I remember going to Fulton Street with my mom every weekend after dance class, and we would go in and out of all the shops, and we'd have the guys pull out all the nameplates, and she'd ask me which ones I liked, if I wanted a capital A or a lowercase a, and if I liked the borders, and we asked tons of questions. And I'm pretty sure I wanted one because a lot of people I knew had one, but my mom has a lot of name jewelry, so I'm sure that has something to do with it too. Um, although I had been in and out of the stores with my mom, we never actually bought it together, but it was a surprise from my parents for my birthday. And I remember being shocked because I was never there when she bought it. And I was so happy because it was exactly what I wanted. My nameplate is both yellow and white gold. It's double plated. And my name, Ashley, is spelled A-S-H-L-E-Y. It has a border around it um, with a heart at the bottom and these like swirls around the top and the side. And on the back of the nameplate, my parents engraved, we will always love you, mom and dad. And it's a really flashy piece of jewelry and I love that. So I generally don't wear jewelry like at all, but I still wear my nameplate. I love that it's big and it makes a statement. And I went through four years of college wearing my nameplate with my big bamboo earrings every time I went out. And I love that it just says something about where I'm from because I think it's generally something minorities wear. Um, or at least I assume that's kind of where it came from, even if other people do wear it now, because it is kind of trendy. <laughs> um, of course, I don't wear my necklace to confirm that I'm Hispanic, but I think think I might like the idea that it might put that in someone's head. And most importantly, I like that it's my name. I think nameplates are telling the world that you're proud of who you are. My first piece was for my mom 
for maybe like my 13th birthday or something like that. And she swagged me out. You know, I was like, whoa, mom, you made this. You know, like my mom took the time to really create something that she thought fit me. You know, you take it to heart because somebody made it. Well, for me, my mom made it. So it was like, that's my mom showing how creative she is. And it was amazing. I, I, you know, I really set the bar. You know, as a kid going to different places and looking for your name at the, at the gift shop on a keychain or, you know, the license plate things, never being able to find it. Um, so kind of having this unique name that, you know, wasn't available in stores for namesake <laughs> items and then, you know, that my patients, you know, will mark on. Um, that it's interesting that, you know, I love my name and part of my fascination and love and appreciation for my name was, you know, having nameplates, like always being able to see it in gold, yeah, written out. Gold. Like I never had a chance to be uncomfortable with my name because it was always something that I wore as a badge of honor. Exactly. Um, actually, I was thinking about this and it's like, you know, babies, when they receive a name, you have to call the baby by a name so many times for them to be, then yeah. to respond to it and to understand, like, that's who you are. And I feel like then the next step and what we're talking about just as a person and sometimes even as kind of like political resistance, just being oppressed and marginalized in different ways and finding light where you can is another way of claiming that and just like, this is, as you were saying, like, this is who I am. You might not be able to spell it, but here is the yeah. spelling for you right yep. here. Yep, yep. It's actually exactly. phonetic or whatever. Um, and then I, I just want to transition to what you brought up previously about receiving nameplates and name jewelry from our family members and how that it then brings on a historical familial story to the name and who in our identity. Yeah. And definitely. I know you wear grandma's. Even having that to have like a nameplate. Now I don't, I don't have a nameplate that has my own name on it. I wear mommy's or I wear grandma's. Um, but I remember when I did have my own, I loved having both my name and my middle name um, on my chest like that. And the fact that my grandmother's was given to her, I don't even know how long ago, but me being her namesake, it, you know, it was a non-thought for me to inherit that. And then, you know, feeling that kind of importance of being someone's namesake, um, it, you know, it influences me to want to name, you know, my daughter, keep that family name going so that I can pass this along. So I own a lot of different name jewelry. I have name earrings a name ring, um, I have my beloved nameplate, I have um, a name bracelet, and, oh, and another pair of name earrings. And I got my name ring for my fifth grade graduation, I'll never forget, <laughs> it had my little diamonds in them, diamond chips, of course. Um, so that was my first um, second, I got my name plate uh, when I went to sixth grade. And my dad, of course, bought all this jewelry. <laughs> and my name earrings, uh, my bamboos that say my nickname, I got when I was in high school um, because I was just always been a lover of 
the 90s and the era and just, you know, what it represented, just originality. And I got the biggest bamboos that the jewelry store on Fulton and J Street had. And I put my tag name Breezy on it um, (laughs) with hearts under it to match my name bracelet that said Breezy as well. My pieces, I feel like, make me stand out. And it just sets you apart because not everyone is into name jewelry. The associations uh, with name jewelry is kind of like your ghetto, which I love, by the way. Uh, But it's just negative to other people. But ghetto to me means something totally different. It just is along the lines of everything I said before as far as originality. Um, Somebody calling me ghetto is not offensive because... I am from the ghetto and I love that because it makes me me and it doesn't stop me from where I'm going. It's just, you know, gives me my flavor. So a challenge was trying to piece together history for this design tradition. And we sort of realized in in the process that not much in that sense had been recorded or historicized in a conventional way. So we've stitched together from a bunch of sources and we've encountered a variety of ideas about where these pieces come from and how they've evolved. Um, So a place to start is that we reached out to jewelry historians, and one person who we spoke to initially is a um, jeweler, jewelry historian, and publisher of a magazine called Adornment, and who we corresponded with via email named Elise Soren Carlin. So um, Elise talked to us a little bit about how Personalized items, specifically jewelry, actually have kind of like a long history of being of being consistently popular. And she first thought about jewelry with words as reaching some kind of higher level public exposure in the kind of mid nineteenth century. So name brooches, for example, were popular during the Victorian era. And um, within Judaism, the word mitzvah was engraved into silver jewelry to communicate a bond between people who are separated. And Mitzpah jewelry specifically is made in the form of a coin-shaped pendant that's cut with a zigzag bearing two words. So she sent us some pictures, and that was kind of like a a jumping-off point. Later, in the early 20th century, especially in the 30s and 40s, inexpensive wire brooches with names on them um, also kind of gained traction. Um, For example, some would say baby or mom, which is like amusingly... (laughs) resembles the kind of of nameplates that we see today that have kind of like identifying descriptors. So she then brought us to kind of her teenagehood. She noticed that in the 60s that she said that everyone had these kinds of nameplates. So this is kind of like her personal narrative as someone who's always been interested in jewelry of what she noticed. Um, But we've also want to explore the fact that at least on the East Coast, nameplate culture is very connected to hip-hop culture and aesthetics. And we feel, and what we found in talking to people is that it's actually this music and stylistic movement which had, which brought nameplates to prominence in pop culture um, to a certain extent. Um, that being said, we're, we're finding that the style of the nameplate, possibly predating its like hip-hop context, is probably older. For example, one of our friends told us that um, her grandmother had a nameplate While she was living in a predominantly Jewish tenement in Philadelphia after immigrating from Russia, hers was gold, a simple script plate that said Bessie with a diamond dotting the eye. Yeah, that's super. It was super interesting to hear like the Victorian sort of like genealogy of personalized jewelry. I mean, I guess it's not surprising. Maybe human beings sort of have this um, fascination with 
customization and personalization, but I wasn't expecting the whole Victorian history, which is really surprising because my historicization of it would really be in the 1980s hip hop culture. And we're actually going to um, hear from Professor Monica Miller, who's um, a professor of literature, but she's also in many respects a historian of black style um, in the United States. And she's going to you're going to hear a clip from her actually um, in which she kind of historicizes the emergence of, of, of nameplate jewelry within the context of 1980s hip hop um, and all sort of the um, the social and, and political sort of turmoil that was going on um, in communities of color at that time. So that was that was my sort of like benchmark, right? I feel like there was something that happened in the 80s. Um, to be honest, that had a lot to do with MTV um, when black street style, in particular, um, really became something that everyone everywhere all of a sudden had access to. So I feel like the 80s are a really important moment in this. I mean, black style has always been something that's been appropriated and reappropriated. The 80s made, made that global in a way, I think, that, um, that hadn't happened before because of the advent of new media platforms like cable television and MTV and VH1 eventually. And so when I think back to the origins of nameplate jewelry, I was really, I was like, when could that have happened, right? Or why or where did it come out of? Um, I had I had a kind of, um, vi- like a kind of flash back to do the right thing, right? Um, at the very end of the film, um, when um, when you see those, uh, they're not nameplate, they're, um, what would you call them, word uh, jewelry, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the love and the hate, mm-hmm. right? And I was yeah, thinking... Yeah, it's same jewelry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so then I thought back to that, right? And I was like, wow. So maybe, I mean, if I had to mark a moment when, when uh, the furthest moment in time when I can think of nameplate having a kind of um, national, international uh, moment, maybe it was that. Right? So that's what I was thinking about in terms of nameplate. And what's interesting to me, where nameplate comes out, where the progression of that also has to do with a kind of kind of flurry after the black power movement um, and after civil rights and black power, right? Really that is when the kind of unique, unique African-American name also I think had the greatest popularity, right? When people were started using um, African names or, um, or um, more traditional alternative spellings for more traditional um, names. And I feel like that was also happening around the same time. So where nameplate comes is to actually show that, right? It's to, materialize it it's to concretize it it's to it's to um customize right um a a name right and it's also to mark to voluntarily mark the self right as an individual right but if everyone has nameplate then it's also like becomes a kind of uniform that i'm really interested in too like it's a uniform of young kind of people of color urbanness um that it's often often you know flashy so it has this kind of like real flash to it that that was really 80s right when we think about gold chains and all of the you know what ends up in a kind of bling culture ultimately but really started off as this kind of i think marking right of um of a certain group of people at a certain time of course there was kind of um a simultaneous growth of nameplates in other parts of the country. Like we're not trying to specifically say that they only emerge in New York. That's kind of what we're focusing on because that was, was a center of 
hip hop culture and of kind of movies and and MTV exposure to, as Monica mentioned, to um, vernacular becoming part of the mainstream. So we also spoke with um, a Houston-born writer, historian, and artist, Barbara Calderon, who um, published an article in Vice last April, actually April of 2015, which caught our eye when we were doing research about cultural appropriation, feminism, and a chola aesthetic. So she talked to us a little bit about her experience having a nameplate, which she actually mentioned in the article, which prompted us to contact her. And her kind of knowledge of nameplates within like a southwestern aesthetic. Yeah, I came across this article that talked about um, nameplates being specifically from Brooklyn or being a very you know Brooklyn thing. But I mean, I I can tell you that a lot of people in Texas, and you know, it's not just Mexican American. I think it's like a lot of different you know communities of color or ethnic communities that wear nameplates it's 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 you know if you go to like the hoods all i mean even in in brooklyn but all over texas or you know la especially i mean uh you see people you see these vendors who are designing these nameplates and you can buy them i bought mine at a flea market you know um and i can tell you the story about it i was 15 years old i was approaching 15 years old and my sister we'd always go to the flea market on airline in houston and um, we went one day, and I wasn't really expecting it, but she's like, okay, my sister Linda, she said, you know, I'm going to buy you your nameplate. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, I've been, I've been wanting one forever, but, you know, it's a really expensive piece of jewelry, you know, about $200, I think. So it was a really big deal to, you know, be seen as being responsible, old enough to have, you know, this expensive piece of jewelry. So my sister and her boyfriend, Angel, bought me or we had to go in and talk about a design with the people who are the vendors and um, I got a non-diamond cut because I wanted mine to be more sleek I guess and um, with also the two birds and the heart just like hers and um, we put an order in and then a week we got it back and that was it. together some sort of historical genealogy another important part of this subject is is looking at how this jewelry is made so in order to do this we actually took a little field trip to Fulton Street in downtown Brooklyn um, and we went around to different jewelry stores trying to talk to people and we came across this one awesome store uh, called Bargain Bazaar Jewelers and it's located on Fulton Street um, it's one of the last sort of like st- standing institutions of what you know Fulton Street once was um, that's still standing. It's been around for probably around 25 years. They really specialize in doing a lot of custom pieces and a lot of their business comes actually from making nameplates of all different types and styles. And you can actually check out our Instagram uh, where we actually sort of like documented all the different styles that uh, this particular store sort of um, uh, produces. So be sure to check that out. 
But, you know, on our trip, on our field trip to Bargain Bazaar, we spoke to Ali, who is um, a jeweler there. He's a designer and he's worked at, uh, at the store for about 12 years. What he told us was that um, the store actually creates everything by hand. Can you see we have a nameplate with the three names? I suppose uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, and you know, like the family name, they can put it too. So how popular, which, which styles of these are, are most popular? It's uh, most popular. Okay, it's, uh, everything is depend on the area and the customer. You know. In this area, it's like mostly the double plate is popular. You know, then people want a more strength and more, you know, like uh, nice also. I have like uh, about 100 fonts we can use for the nameplate. Oh, and over, over 150 designs and nameplates and monograms, I have two, two designs. Well, to sort of like create a, a little bit of a typology just to cover the basis of what kind of the usual nameplate styles that we encountered are. And we talked to Ali about this, kind of like if he could help us create some categories. So as far as items go, um, what we're going to talk most about in this show and what seems to be the most popular, probably even just for legibility purposes and for like readability, is pendants, which you wear on your chest. Second, probably the second most popular is hoops. Um, either classic hoops or bamboo, a.k.a. door knockers. Um, rings, we also have seen a lot of. Those are really awesome, although you have to have kind of a short name or it's not very readable. Bracelets, we saw two um, name belts, like belt buckles, pins. I've actually seen earrings, which rather than being a hoop are a stud, and the stud itself is the yeah, word. Those are awesome. I love those. Yeah. I mean, it sort of depends on the length of your name also, yeah. like what you can put on there. But we also saw all these um, incredible nameplates that had multiple names or like a whole family, um, maybe like mother, father, and children all kind of like linked um, to each other. Or lovers. Yeah. Or this exactly. One loves this lovers one. play a little safer than a tat. So exactly. if you're so looking for something for your special exactly. someone. Get your nameplate. Yeah. Get tattooed, please. <laughs> but um, as far as materials, gold is the most popular. Also white gold, but it's it, it's expensive. Um, silver, a lot are two-tone, mostly gold with kind of a silver accent, which is what I like. Crystal and diamond embellishment, also popular. And fonts, we also wanted to get into because I feel like that's kind of like the consistent identifier. I mean, we do see ones um, in caps, which Marcel actually has a plate like that. But almost always it's this cursive font, and almost always it's either all lower clay all lowercase or just the first letter capped. But we'll have pictures of, of these kinds of things online so you guys can check out what we're actually talking about. But it was interesting to see how there are these typologies and how there's certain ones that are like consistently popular. I think another you know key formal aspect of nameplate jewelry as a style is, of course, the name. And nameplate styles focus, particularly on the written word, I think brings up a whole other set of issues and questions about you know, naming and the politics of naming, what is the significance? What is the significance of having, you know, a piece of jewelry, um, such a bold piece of jewelry that, you know, s declares your name and declares your presence? So you're going to hear from Monica Miller right now. In the, the 80s in New York, I mean, from what I understand, having not been here, um, you know, was a really rough moment in terms of, you know, um, Reagan Reagan-esque um, social politics, right? So neighborhoods, um, social services are being defunded. Um, there's a lot of crime. There's crack epidemic. I mean, it's, you know, between Brooklyn and um, Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Harlem, you know, they, these are not kind of, you know, wonderful, great times in, in any of those neighborhoods. So the terms, in terms, I mean, this is, a, people talk about that generation of, um, 
of young black people, right? As a generation of, of young folks who were in some ways being in the process of being erased, right, from the social fabric, right? So these were people that we were not thinking about as citizens anymore, right? Um, but somehow as kind of trapped in urban environments um, that that in some ways stripped away whatever um, rights and responsibilities we had to them as Americans. I mean, that's how I think about it. So in terms of the nameplate, I mean, that that's a kind of really, I mean, again, a super um, human response to that de-individualization again, um, a human response to um, to wanting to have some, um, wanting to be a part of right um, something or wanting to show that one was present, right? Um, it has this kind of um, almost, um, you know, if we take it back into literary theory, right? I mean, it has this, I mean, the, the idea of the nameplate is actually, um, it's, an, it's an enunciation of a certain part, of certain kind that, you know, does really assert presence and um, and also not only asserts presence but then becomes legible right so the important thing is that you can read it right um, so the idea that you know it comes into being and then is legible is really I think really important right in terms of thinking about how the reverse process was um, was really all around um, I think you know black and Latino youth in the 80s um, even at the same time, and this is the irony, right? Even at the same time that hip hop, right, starts to become this, you know, American um, hip hop transitions, right? Um, uh, in some ways, out of uh, out of um, quote unquote urban spaces um, into into the mainstream. Um, so there's this real, I don't know, it's a real tension, I think, between um, between again a kind of illegibility. And then a hyper visibility. So I think kind of getting to these issues about who wears nameplates and, you know, how they've been perceived historically and now, you know, I think critical to the discussion about nameplate jewelry is really thinking through like how this style itself is categorized, how it's perceived, how it's judged, not just by people like me and you, Isabel, who who really love this style and wear it, you know, all the time. But also, you know, how this style is perceived by people who are, you know, have somewhat of a different opinion on on this kind of jewelry. So I guess I'll open up with kind of talking about an anecdote that happened to me recently. <laughs> so recently I was catching up with someone who I really, really, really admire. Super dope. While we were talking, I was, so I was wearing my figuratively necklace, the XOXO chain that I guess is, you know, relatively flashy. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. You definitely it, don't not read it. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty flashy. Like you're definitely going to know that it says figuratively. But nonetheless, I was wearing it and... She brought it up, this person I really admire. So I started telling her about, you know, my love for nameplates and, you know, how, like, I, I'm collecting these different pieces and all that stuff. You know, in response, she, she said to me that it was really cool that I could wear tacky things. And she she said tacky and like scare quotes, you know. So I was like, hmm, okay. So I bet my face got super red. Because, okay, maybe it's a compliment that, like, one could wear tacky things well. Like, I guess that's a compliment, right? Like, you could pull things off. Like, sure. Cool. But at the same time, I was like, ooh. Like, she says that my necklace is tacky, which kind of means, 
that's, you know, even if it's qualified and sort of like scare quotes, it implies that this person who I think is like super cool was perceiving something that I think is really cool in like a negative way. So I was like, oh my God, no. She thought my nameplate was undesirable. It was in bad taste. It was ugly. Basically, that's what I was thinking. Um, so sort of her kind of calling my nameplate tacky, uh, this really, this interaction really introduced, reintroduced into my awareness, the fact that nameplates are often, you know, talked about as tacky and as in poor taste because would, you know, which utterly really confuses me because I think all my nameplate pieces are like the flyest shit ever. So I like, I guess was so like into my own thing that I didn't even really, <laughs> really feeling yourself. <laughs> I did. I was so feeling that I was like, I didn't even really think about the fact that people could think that this was ugly. Like, I guess I was just like in my own like nameplate, like bubble or something. <laughs> so that was kind of like, whoa, like, I guess it kind of jolted me into sort of like a, an awareness that, yeah, some people don't actually like this stuff, Marcel. And she also like immediately kind of contextualized the like the object itself which is sort of what we what we want to get into next and it's kind of like the core of this conversation is that where this item is located matters tremendously as to how it's interpreted by whoever's seeing it so the idea like about you having this conversation is that in whatever academic setting which I'm guessing is since you're in school um how this went down that there could be a way to kind of like frame a tacky item in a cool way so then the question is, like, what is this item when it's not in that context? Like, exactly. what is, I mean, I studied art history. So, like, what is a piece of art on the street outside of the museum, outside of the gallery? It's, it's almost like the same question. So um, we started to think a little bit about, like, what the word tacky means. I actually don't really subscribe a negative connotation to the word tacky. Same. But obviously um, the general public does. So like, what is it about a nameplate which would be tacky? Like what are the actual qualities? Size is important. And that's something that we want to talk more about later. Also kind of the the material gold, um, the fact that it's glittery, the fact that it's seen as ostentatious or obnoxious, which essentially both tie to it just being like obvious and hard to, to not notice. So it's like that tackiness is actually in this case, at least being, assertive and obvious, which is something to think about. So we wanted to ground this a little bit in concepts of taste because of the fact that tacky does have this kind of negative connotation. So just to get a little bit academic for a second, we were thinking about French sociologist, writer, and philosopher Pierre Bourdieu and how he can help his writings have like helped us ground ideas of taste and how this concept functions in everyday life. So the idea is that taste as a form of kind of aesthetic preference or disposition is essentially rooted in a class hierarchy, which has really close ties to education and exposure and therefore to structures of control and power. So essentially to have kind of refined or educated taste, you had to be exposed to the kind of information that would teach you how to think that way. Um, And within these structures is also latent notions of superiority because taste by definition is qualitative. So I actually, I'm really into terminology and definitions. So I actually looked up in a couple of dictionaries definitions of what taste is, which ranged from the ability to distinguish difference or flavor, which is kind of a literal yeah. meaning, to, more interestingly, I think, the ability to discern what is of a good quality or a high standard. Hmm. 
What I think is the most interesting about taste as like a thing, as like a concept, is the fact that like it's taken as a sort of a self-evident, like an objective category, which sort of like reinscribes its power. You know, the fact that if something is categorized in good taste, you know, you don't question its tastefulness sure. because you don't have to. But what we're trying to do here is sort of deconstruct the fact that tackiness and taste are categories that are constructed and they're sort of like socially and culturally like constituted and they're sort of like implicated in all these sorts of different like class, race, gender hierarchies, which I think are kind of like encapsulated when um, someone calls a nameplate tacky. Yeah, it's also, um, I think, easy to kind of like internalize and make personal taste in the sense that you're kind of born with an with innate sense of taste and that some people like have good taste and some people don't. Um, this, well, okay. So there's a quote from this, from artist Marcel Duchamp, which I first, I think read in like late high school and I didn't really understand it the first time, nor did I understand it for a while, but it goes as follows. I force myself to contradict myself in order to avoid conforming to my own taste. And this I think is actually like a really relevant and great idea because it in like the idea that you would encourage yourself to check yourself and to be conscious and critical of where your notion of quality comes from that in those like when you subscribe to an aesthetic or when you make a choice like any kind of visual choice that there is like a ton kind of packed There's a, so much a ton stuff. of meaning and significance packed into like every single choice that you make like every formal choice has innate kind of hierarchy within it and that to be aware of that and to kind of ask yourself why do I prefer certain looks or like why do I think that some things are better than others or some things are uglier or some things are beautiful not to get like too philosophical but I think that no let's go there ask, let's keep yeah but to ask yourself those questions personally True. is very difficult but but I also think is like really important has anyone called your nameplate tacky or your name earrings exclusive <laughs> I do have name earrings that say exclusive no one has called them tacky to my face But people have definitely laughed at them often and have also, like, suggested to me that I was wearing them as, like, a joke or in some kind of irony, which I'm absolutely not. And there's practically no context that I wouldn't wear them in. So I've definitely had people project onto me the idea that I'm somehow, like, dressing up or in costume when I wear them, which I've just kind of tried to laugh off. Part of the idea of a refined female look is for things to be subtle, small, and kind of like deliberately not ostentatious. So, and to me, I I see that as like inherently and really problematically um, kind of like diminutive and minimizing. I mean, actually, because we're talking about size, but the idea that you should sort of not take up space, not be noticeable, not be obvious, not stand out, not draw attention to yourself unless asked to do so, um, has a huge um, relevance for kind of like what the relationship between men and women is and what the relationship between women and their environment is. True, which is like where... In a formal way. Exactly, which is where sort of like, I guess like the confrontational sort of like politics sort of underlying the double-plated nameplates that you're wearing right now and, like, I'm holding right now sort of, you know, represents is the fact that, like, this style that we're wearing is not, it's not about hiding. It's not about, like, it's about being seen. It's about, like, you know, in double-plate, in 3D, actually. Like, you're seeing my name 
with in gold, like with diamonds or without diamonds, it, something shining around your neck that's, you know, making yourself legible in a way that... And not anonymous. Exactly. Yeah. That may, you know, it's not this sort of like dainty, like I'm like like a delicate, like if you touch me, I'm going to like freaking fall apart delicate, sort yeah. of like situation. Like, no, it's actually like the exact opposite. And it's very grounded and sturdy and, and, and three-dimensional in a way that I think as I said, has this sort of like this confrontational aspect to it that I think kind of gives this, gives it this sort of, um, this, this power that I think, I think translates at least to me personally, when I wear this kind of jewelry, like I definitely, especially the, you know, going through sort of like the academia sort of industry and not wanting to really like, you know, get rid of my name jewelry. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's saying something about, about who you are and, and, and where you position yourself in our world that I think is, is not about hiding. It's about actually like taking up space, which I think is like inherently like a political act. Totally. And it's really poignant to me that so many of these words associated with kind of like, um, acceptable or in good taste, um, feminine style traditionally like, um, dainty or, a word like subtle or um, elegant, all of these words which kind of have an association of being small. I mean, if you actually like look up the definitions, there there's something like incredibly belittling and like corrosive about the idea that you would describe yourself in this way. Delicate. Right. That's one that I was thinking of. Like why? I mean, it's like if you actually think about the not the contextual kind of colloquial way that it's used in a sense, but if you actually isolate the word and think about what it means and what it would mean to want to describe yourself that way, a lot of these words are kind of like anti-existence, anti-presence. And I think that you really just need, that it's really important to be like careful and to think about that stuff, sure. which leads us to um, to talk a little bit about also how we were reflecting about why we like wearing things like this and why we like wearing things that to some extent are, are considered to be in bad taste or that make people kind of stare at us in public and, and, and things like that or kind of maybe ridicule our outfit. Like why is it so appealing to wear something which is kind of unbecoming? Sure. So I don't know if you want to weigh in on that. but um, I think that for me... Um, well, as I mentioned my anecdote, like, I guess I, like, I wasn't really aware that people thought this style was ugly until someone kind of like said it was tacky. Um, but I guess for me being in sort of like academia, I guess in sort of like a domain that's kind of like relatively conservative, like not really, I think wearing nameplate jewelry, which is, I guess, ostensibly like in bad taste for me, kind of taking claim of like who I am in this space for me kind of keeps me sane. I mean, that is an aesthetic hierarchy that you're kind of transcending because it's like there's certain I mean, this is the whole idea of context is that there's a there's like a time and a place for every style. But the I mean, we'll touch on this later, but like the good or like interesting thing about um, these things like leaking into other aspects of 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 culture and social life where they didn't or being appropriated or, or, or kind of entering arenas where they didn't exist before is that you can sort of like break up an idea of something being better or superior or being out of place or in place that like anything can exist in any sphere. I mean, that's kind of a quixotic way to approach it, but it's possible. And I also think just to like build off of what you were saying that like as a female, when, when so much pressure and um, significance and, and like value, which is totally absurd is attached to just like how you look that to have a consistent 
thing, which is you, when you're constantly being asked to like conform to all these changing standards, to all these, and you're constantly be, being expected to kind of like accommodate people and please them, that to have something that is just you and you're kind of like, whatever, take, take me or leave me, like this one, right. I'm going to wear this every day. Like, true, true. But I think before we kind of move away, I mean, we're not really moving away from the, the taste category, but I think I just want to kind of touch upon... You know, we're talking more broadly about sort of like the social hierarchies that are kind of embedded in conversations about tackiness and taste. Um, but I think it's also just important to sort of like underscore those partic- this particular social hierarchies that we're talking about, which I think in, with re- the ones that we're, we're isolating with respect to name trade jewelry are really race, gender and class or sort of politics that seem to be seem to circulate around this particular aesthetic. And I guess I just wanted to say some things about, you know, sort of like cultural production in the United States and, you know, nameplates kind of being a part of that, that, that history. And I think if we're, if at least we're thinking about the aesthetic of nameplate jewelry that I guess that I'm really into wearing as being sort of like historically located with, um, I guess in like the eighties in New York, I think it's just, it's important to touch upon, you know, when, when, when this kind of jewelry is called like tacky, we got to think about like sort of historically how, you know, cultural production in the United States in relation to people of color, how it's, you know, sort of been, um, how it's sort of been discussed and talked about, you know, people of color, you know, the United States have been sort of the vanguard. I think about creating things that sort of become indexed as like mainstream popular culture. In this really interesting way where, you know, at the one on the one hand, it's like popularized and praised and consumed while like at the same time, it's sort of like defiled and denigrated as like tacky and, 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 and nasty. And I think this sort of like this paradoxical sort of infatuation with like the stuff that people of color create can be thought about in a way that this historian and like English professor named Eric Law, he's at CUNY, he talks about it's like love and theft. Um, which I think is really sort of illustrative of, of, you know, it gets at the heart of like race politics, I think, I think of American like cultural production. If we're thinking about nameplates within this sort of like lineage, um, which is sort of this, this, this simultaneous sort of like intense, like infatuation, yet kind of like hate with like the cultural stuff that people of color produce that I think you could see with even hip hop, which I think that nameplates fall kind of directly within that history of, you know, hip hop as sort of like a cultural thing in the United States. So I think when we think about taste, we think about tackiness, especially with respect to nameplates, we can kind of see how, you know, a broader perception of, you know, what is tasteless or unrefined or ghetto or ratchet, how all these sort of like qualifiers that are put towards what a nameplate is are really bundled up and shaped by these social hierarchies that I think kind of get us back to what the whole Bourdieu sort of context about the fact that taste and tackiness, these are not like self-evident. These are not objective categories, but they really have like a history that, and and, and a living history actually, not just in the past, but a history that continues to be created. Let's talk about, you know, we're going to get into you know, you were talking about this sort of like this dainty, this dainty style. You remember you were doing some research on nameplates that are sold at like Neiman's and Barney's and the way that the style transforms, not just aesthetically, but also sort of the discourse around, you know, these objects, how it transforms something that's ghetto, scare quotes, turns, becomes elegant. 
and how and why sort of the language around a piece of jewelry, not just the language, but actually the aesthetics around it. Well, the, yeah, I mean, the aesthetics change exactly. dramatically. Like they're not yeah. selling double plated nameplates on in Neiman Marcus. You know what I mean? But, you know, there's definitely a transformation of the, the language around this jewelry that is... Um, it's taking out of context, but it's also the language around it transforms in a way that I think is like really interesting to sort of like talk about. The ring was not good. What do you mean? It was a pear-shaped diamond oh. with a gold band. Oh, ick! Ugh, no wonder you threw up. It's just not me. You wear gold jewelry? Yeah, like ghetto gold for fun, but this is my engagement ring. I think where the name the nameplate thing sort of had this pop culture reemergence is with Sex and the City, with Sarah Jessica Parker, aka Carrie Bradshaw, wearing the a, a, a news toward a interpretation of the nameplate necklace on the show, and she makes kind of references on I guess a couple of the shows about ghetto gold and like. Her necklace. I mean, I didn't watch a show, so I don't really know what the whole storyline was. It's kind of. I mean, it's like an identifying part of. It's it's like her thing that she always wears. It's It's definitely a very identifying part of her outfit. So I did some research because I was really intrigued by the fact that Sarah Jessica Parker, (coughs) Sarah Jessica Parker, kind of becomes this figure, you know, for as an innovator of the nameplate, and I found that actually um, the designer Patricia Fields was kind of responsible for sort of like styling her um, with this necklace and actually found a quote from an article on InStyle this year where she said, quote, I have a shop in New York City and a lot of the kids in the neighborhood wore them, them being nameplates. I thought maybe I'd show it to Sarah Jessica and she'll like the idea. She did. And she made it happen. It became a universal, long lasting thing. Hmm. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to like, you know, get into there. But I guess the main question that is sort of sparked in my mind after reading this quote from Patricia Fields is, you know, who is being written out of this history of nameplate jewelry when, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker, you know, in In Style Magazine kind of becomes the person who makes nameplates, quote, universal, quote, long standing, you know, like who's being written out of this history Um, and does something, you know, only become universal or significant after it's sort of absorbed by this sort of like mainstream, scare quotes, popular culture. Um, And I think that, you know, this emergence I think of nameplate jewelry and the concept of sex in the city and Carrie Bradshaw, I think really brings to the fore these issues of like appropriation, cultural appropriation, which we all know have become this sort of like think piece, like hot topic online. Um, While, you know, it's productive, I think, you know, we've talked about this as well. Like it's productive in some senses, but I think the term cultural appropriation also has a tendency to become like hackneyed in a way that's loosely defined. And I think is insufficient to kind of describe the more like fraught aspects of how sort of cultural products, how, like how they circulate, you know? So it's funny because Carrie actually, I mean, I'm not even sure if cultural appropriation was a buzzword. I don't think so. I mean, I highly doubt it. I don't think so. But um, it's funny how she is kind of this like prototype of this, cool kind of fun free-spirited it girl who can wear whatever from like can kind of like pick formal qualities out of different looks and different styles and like 
and wear them in a kind of high class situation and make them cool and fun. Like she's like a she's like a caricature of that person. Exactly. And which I think is really funny. And it's 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 especially funny that that the nameplate is sort of like one of her things that she does this to and which she kind of like legitimizes in a way. Scare quotes on that word for sure, but I mean that's that that's sort of how it's interpreted, and it's it was also crazy when we were first researching this topic, and I was just doing like really base level like googling. I kept just finding stuff about her when I was googling nameplate, like, and so many yeah, I was like, what? So many websites. Yeah, called nameplates Carrie necklaces and always like the demo name and in the picture was Carrie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this was, I mean, I actually, unlike you, I actually did watch Sex and the City. It's been appalling watching these clips now and like read and sort of like registering all this information, which I was definitely just like internalizing as in like pre, as like a tween. But um, yeah, it's really, it's really amazing like how, how much that stuck, like how much her wearing that was, was significant for people. In, exactly. in terms of how they like conceptualize this. Yeah, I think like, I mean, getting back to this whole cultural appropriation thing, I guess like as an as an anthropologist in training. Yes. I'm anthropologist compelled to, Marcel. I'm, I'm compelled to sort of like say that cultural appropriation is like, you know, fundamentally like what makes us human beings in the sense that like culture is not this like bounded sort of thing, but it's something that is diffuse and sort of like travels and you know, it's interesting to document how how culture travels and, and between who. But I think, you know, in the realm of cultural production, which is what we're talking about, especially in the context of the United States, you know, that has a whole mess of social hierarchy sort of at the basis of its social structure, whether it be race, class, gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how those things overlap. Exactly. Yeah. How those things overlap, et cetera. I think that they're really critical issues at stake when cultural products like nameplates that are, you know, created by marginalized groups are taken up by groups and I guess in a more advantageous sort of social position in the society. Um, stolen perhaps i don't know if that's the right word to use but i guess appropriated might be better so these these cultural products are appropriated and in the case of carrie brashaw i guess what we're seeing is that you know she kind of becomes a stand-in for the whole history of nameplates i mean Patricia field said that she made nameplates universal and long-standing which for me i think kind of gets to the core of like what makes you know cultural appropriation like the, the the bad sides of cultural appropriation when a whole history of sort of cultural production and human vibrancy and creativity that and was hard fought individuality hard work and 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 stories that are sort of all nested in like what name like culture is kind of get reduced and sort of distilled in Carrie Bradshaw being this like universal like person that kind of brought nameplates to like relevance to me that's where it's like oh like that's kind of like what the upshot is of like cultural appropriation and i guess like what kind of transforms cultural appropriation conversations from being like trite and like oh my god what are you talking about and to like okay there's real stakes involved and in, you know when one lady kind of gets sort of like credit for a whole style you know well and also the fact that when like a privileged group borrows uh well any kind of visual detail from an underprivileged group it's and and that detail has its kind of like initial meaning and also its 
um, its whole development kind of evacuated that you get to skim off kind of like the end result. Like, like you, you kind of enjoy the rewards, which are like, Oh, edginess or like uh, kind of a street flair or coolness or something of that. You kind of skim that off and you, you don't have to take responsibility for any of the rest of it, nor to kind of like suffer through what it took to like get to a place where that was possible to make or was possible to like be celebrated. Right. This is actually what Barbara talks about incredibly eloquently and what her article, which we highly recommend is about as well is kind of like what, I mean, when you, when you think of a specific aesthetic pertaining to a group in the case of Barbara's article, Cholas, which is a, a separate topic, like why do people dress a certain way? I mean, this is just what we're talking about. Like, why would you wear your name? Why would you have a really specific look that was that was really obvious and and that had a kind of like formal cohesion that bonded people together? Like, why would you have all those things and why would it be so noticeable? And like, there's resistance and struggle in that. I mean, there's like pain in that that, that makes solidarity necessary. Exactly. And I think the erasure of the histories and the people that were involved in actually like making the nameplates have this sort of like cool cachet that when kind of evacuated of their context, like it, it, it kind of has this sort of cool. I think that's, you know, part of the problem is that it's like that it's that erasure of that history. from both of them is that I think it's important not to like shame sharing itself and, and like the dispersion of information and style, but rather that like recognizing the narrative and recognizing the history of something is essential to, to borrowing it. And, and like, that's, that's what makes it okay to do because sort of like the idea is that instead of, taking something from a community and like leaving the community by the wayside, which is when it would be more of like a stealing situation where you like take the object and run. The idea is that you would instead create these like hybrid communities where um, people were kind of borrowing each other's histories, backgrounds, information, knowledge, abilities, preferences. And, and that's what kind of makes a mix. And that this is a huge cliche, but I mean, that's kind of like the idea of a melting pot in the positive sense. Right. And I mean, obviously, like preserving your original culture and, and maintaining distinct is really important as well. But where appropriation could be positive is is when it kind of like moves us forward and creates solidarity between groups that might not have had contact before. Right. So, so that would be like a positive outcome. And, and it's in that recognition that, I mean, that's where the kind of, not the answer, but that's where kind of the at least the palliative solution for now lies. Totally, totally. I think, yeah, I think there's, as I said, there's, you know, cultural appropriation is what makes us human, but it's like when we don't recognize, I guess, the humanity in each other, then like, you know, cultural appropriation kind of rears its ugly head and kind of, you know, reinforces these like divisions that I think... I think through art and cultural production, I think there's a lot of potential to bring people together. Um, but it, it, it takes, it takes a bit, it takes some self-awareness, I think to, for sure to, to know and to be concerned and care about, you know, if you're wearing a nameplate, like, you know, like Carrie Bradshaw, like 
didn't like invent <laughs> nameplates, you know? So, um, yeah, I think that's a really important point you bring up. Um, so I think, but I guess like to wrap up aside from our thoughts on appropriation that we kind of wanted to bring in this slogan of second wave feminism, which we think applies in this case, which is that, um, the political is personal and the personal is political. So like the idea is that isolated individual, even private, um, acts like have a political valence and are kind of like the core, like the keystone that those like micro operations are what make up like the fabric of society. So even something as simple as wearing a necklace can have a political valence. Like that is an act of, of, of resistance and of self-declaration, especially in situations where, where a group or, or, or a person is being discriminated against, but like these little acts and these little formal aesthetic visual, whatever each, each expression has meaning and, and, and significance and, and has effects. So that's kind of what we wanted to, to end on. Yeah, but, exactly. Be tacky y'all. And it. if you want, <laughs> if you want a nameplate, you know, if you're in New York city, uh, which is where me and Isabel are based, you know, there's so many places locally where you can actually really support local artisans who are, who are making this jewelry, who are making this jewelry for a really long time. And I think it's important to keep, I, yeah, I think it's important to keep this sort of like cultural production alive within New York City. Totally. So there's a lot of places in New York, downtown Brooklyn. We talked about Brooklyn. You know, we talked about the Jewelry Bazaar on Fulton Street. Like, totally check that place out. Um, there's a ton of places in Harlem where you can get some really cool pieces. There's also some places on the LES, on Canal Street, where you could, you know, support support local businesses. I think that's another, like, thing that I think is super and important. And support artists who, for whom this is their craft. I exactly. Mean, and if you're at 510 Fulton, please say hello to Ali. Yeah. Shout out to Ali yeah. because we also got fronts for free. Yeah. <laughs> secrets. Are, secrets. Not, all, not everybody can not get those. Not everyone can but... get, but like I guess they like this. So, yeah, check out your local places if, in your, if you're in New York City. Um, definitely, because I think it's important to keep this tradition alive. Um, definitely. And also, most importantly, uh, anyone who's listening, if you want to weigh in about your experience with nameplate, if you have a story you want to tell, if you have information about the history, if you have anecdotes, we welcome all of it. Or if you just want to talk to me and Isabel, really, you know... As Isabel mentioned before, the format of this podcast is really to be process oriented. I think that's really operative for what we're trying to do because, you know, we don't really have any set like format or like standardized thing. We're really trying to collaborate with everyone who's listening with us to try to help us ask interesting questions and talk to people who, you know, we think we should talk to. So please, like, feel free to reach out to us. Um, for right now, you can reach out to um, this email, marcel at toprankmagazine.com. Or you can also reach out to info at toprankmagazine.com, whichever email y'all remember. Just hit us up and let us know, like, questions, topics, ideas, histories, pictures. Yes. And what? Oh, yeah. Pictures, please send them. And also for this is our first episode. And if there's other topics that you that everyone is interested in or would like to propose, please be in touch, because as we said, this is not a presentation. This is a conversation. So thank you for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The love in your heart is a boy love for me Do you see me in my pants and ting? See me in my altar back See me give you a heart attack Give me a little 
be a smile.